Hi, I'm Brian Buckalter, NCSM's Director of Professional Learning, and welcome to Learning with Leaders. We're all math people. Thank you for joining me and my co-host, NCSM President Katie Arrington, as we talk with bold leaders and influencers about their math journeys and contributions. Today, we will hear from our special guest about their inspiration, perceptions, and insights about instructional decisions that make mathematics welcoming and engaging to a broad audience. Listen and learn about how beliefs, practices, and policies must continue to advance to ensure that each and every person sees themselves as a capable and powerful mathematical thinker. Hello listeners, I'm Katie Arrington and welcome to the NCSM podcast, Learning with Leaders. Continuing our series, We're All Math People, Today's episode is a topic that I've been thinking about a lot, and I'm excited to be learning about with and from our special guests today. Welcome to 2024. We hope that you had a wonderful winter break, holidays, and are embarking on a very happy new year. But without further ado, let's introduce you to our guests today, Dr. Sean Nank and Dr. Jackie Moroska, who are here to talk about storytelling. Empathetic storytelling, to be precise, and how to use this strategy to create change in educational structures through elevating voices. Let me tell you a little bit about each of them. Sean is currently teaching at Cal State University in San Marcos, is a professor at the American College of Education, and works at Oceanside Unified School District. He has a wide range of meaningful experiences from working with the U.S. DOE and with the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy with the NSF. Gosh, we could go on, but we'll leave it there. He just started his term on the NCSM board as the director for the region, Western Two region. He served last year as the associate editor of the Journal for Mathematics Education Leadership for NCSM and has served on the NCTM board previously. His work is centered in creating equitable spaces for all student voices and integrating students' passions into K-12 classrooms. Jackie is currently a STEM instructional coach in a K-8 school district north of Chicago and a mathematics educator researcher. She is the past president of the Illinois Council of Teachers of Mathematics, a former NCTM Mark Central One representative, and loves math. Prior to serving in the STEM role, Jackie spent 11 years in higher education specializing in teaching K-12 mathematics content and methods, and six years teaching high school and middle school mathematics. In her research, Jackie is passionate about exploring ways to develop teachers' mathematical knowledge for teaching and equitable student discourse structures. Jackie also enjoys sharing her enthusiasm for mathematics and research-based insights through conference presentations and workshops. Since 2010, she's given over 100 presentations on a variety of math education topics at national, international, state, and local professional organizations, and has published over 30 articles and book, book chapters. Welcome, Sean and Jackie. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you all for being here. Um, listen. I have to know, I have to say that I know Sean and Jackie on both a personal and professional level and 
they are absolutely incredible on their own. Uh, but recently, you guys have teamed up to do something really, really special. Uh, let's just jump right into it. Tell us about this adventure that you've undertaken that involves empathetic storytelling and why you chose to do this project. Sure, I'll start with this one. This adventure started actually with a 10-minute Ignite talk that I was invited to do in early 2020 in Chicago, and I asked Sean to join me. We called the talk, You Have to Choose. And in this talk, Sean and I shared a few stories from our own personal experiences where we spoke about instances in which we all teach more than mathematics, things that as educators, we have to navigate such as racism in our classes, sexism, bullying, either by students or between colleagues. So on that particular day, we challenged our participants with various, various scenarios that had actually occurred to us and said, what would you do? And we challenged them to be proactive instead of reactive if a similar situ situation would have you know, occurred to them. So we asked, what actions can we take not only individually, but in our institutions and communities to challenge systemic educational inequities? And that's where the kernel of this book came from, and that those same sentiments are what we took into assembling the book. After that happened, that talk actually morphed into a longer session which we did a number of times, and then an article. And right when we were ready to submit the article, we found a book proposal opportunity with real publishers, and they had a critical storytelling series. And we realized the things that we were writing about fit what they're looking for, using storytelling to address barriers and inequities in our educational system. So instead of just a short article, with stories from Sean and myself, we decided to pivot, edit a book with the goal of igniting action. And Sean can tell you a little bit more about how the book really differed from where this started. Yeah, well, there's there's a diversity of diversities in this world. So we figured there should be a diversity of diversities in this book. And I mean, <laughs> Life's too short, death's too long. So I'm just going to dive in and say it shouldn't be filled with stories just from straight white people. And that was our pitch to Brill, uh, in all honesty, was if we were going to write a book about empathy and storytelling and what's really going on in an educational system, it shouldn't just be from two white people, which is why we opened it up to anybody and everybody who had experiences in education. So we basically used our four themes of uh Racism, sexism, ableism, any of the isms was one of the themes. Another theme is belonging and identity. The third is caring in relationships. And the fourth one is bullying. And when I say bullying, I often realize that there's a lot more adult bullying going on in education than we know. Uh, so we just wanted to use those to elicit stories from anyone who had interactions in education, from parents to students to teachers, administrators, classified staff, anybody and everybody. And <laughs> kind of reflecting on why I chose to do this project. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I can say it as succinctly as possible. Is some of us are so afraid of looking forward because we've spent way too much time looking back. 
I wanted to use empathetic storytelling to break our patterns of thoughts and realize that our past comes up for a purpose and a reason. And that purpose lies in what we are experiencing in the present moment. So the trick is using our stories to figure out why that story is coming up now. And what's going on now that's bringing up that story from the past or another way of putting it is why is this a current recurring story because we've all had that i mean i have ocd so i probably have it more than most people but <laughs> i tend to get trapped in my head condemning me to be like kind of stuck in that fleeting moment like sprinkling the meaning of that moment of that story into every interaction i have in the present moment so it's kind of a matter of the reason why we took this on was because we all need to heal in some way. And mm. I firmly believe that I was put on this earth to help others find mm. their why. Like my why is to help other people find their why. And I hope this book both helped the authors and will help the readers to do so. So we wanted to offer the conference session that Jackie talked about where we dove deep into these stories yeah. and we stopped pulling punches and share the stories that we've experienced stories of people outside of education might be shocked to know what's really going on in education and as i'm talking about this i'm thinking of all the author chapters of all the stories like my <laughs> my daughter wrote a chapter in this book on bullying i mean there's uh carol wrote a chapter in this book where she decides to not chemically straighten her hair and all of what that meant in terms of people's interactions. And we have stories about like Anne Renee's chapter about when she wasn't. And then when she was openly gay as an educator, sorry, I'm going to out you right now, Katie, but we have uh, Katie's chapter, which is having to tackle with some heavy duty deficit language. Um, so there's a rich diversity of different stories in here that we wouldn't have been able to write about because we didn't want to take stories we heard from other people we wanted them to tell their stories themselves wow listen can i can i just say that was the first question and like already <laughs> i'm just i'm intrigued i feel like i'm halfway through all the gambit of emotions <laughs> already right uh, i just wanted to say to you too that hearing how this project came about i can appreciate its organic beginnings you know really starting from um, just this moment that you were sharing and watching how it blossomed until now, I'm going to call it a tool, uh, a tool to support people on this journey. Um, it's just amazing. I've had a chance to preview some of the stories and I can tell you now to some extent in every story that I've read, I've been able to say, Oh, I get it. Like I understand that. And that reflection moment you were talking about, Sean, I found it. Uh, so this is great. Thank y'all for, just your time and energy in making this happen. This is great. I'll second that for sure. Yeah. Um, I have I really enjoyed getting to work with Jackie and Sean um, on the book, but I'll ask one of the same questions that I asked when we first started working on this, because um, I'm sure people are wondering. I, I know lots of people talk about storytelling, but what is empathetic storytelling specifically? And why does it help to elevate voices and build awareness and create change in the system? How does this empathetic part come into play? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. It ties into our theoretical framework. Mm -hmm. Our book on empathetic storytelling will be a part of Brill's critical storytelling series. So 
we had to work to define empathetic storytelling as a subset of critical storytelling. And that ties into what ended up to be our critical, our, our theoretical framework. And I'll pass it along to Sean to tell you a little bit more about how that came to be. It came to be in a messy way. I mean, we didn't meet in one day and say, hey, let's write a book. This is a series of years of interactions with a lot of people at different presentations and whatnot. So like, I guess the best way um, I can explain empathetic storytelling, uh, because I think this is a pretty new endeavor, uh, is think of it as a Venn diagram with some overlap, but some exclusion. So critical storytelling in Brill's critical storytelling series is critical. <laughs> it's by name, it has to be critical. But empathetic storytelling can still be critical. Like there's one story in, in this book about somebody who's in a locker room and some other guys come into a locker room to go work out for the day. And this one guy starts telling a story about how he got cut off on the way to the gym. And in the story, he slyly states something about the fact that it was a Hispanic woman that cut him off. And that's one of the things that years ago, it was my story that happened that stuck with me that kind of permeated what this book is about and what empathy is about. Because I always ask the question, does the fact that it was a Hispanic woman have anything to do with the fact that they cut you off or they were driving badly? Maybe covertly sexist. Thank you. Maybe you're being covertly sexist or racist right now or a little bit of both. So, so here's, here's empathetic storytelling in a nutshell. Um, as we conceptualize empathetic storytelling, it's leaning on the ways our stories create connections, communities, partnerships, relationships, because change doesn't come solely by being critical. I mean, critical is an aspect of change, but change truly comes through the relationships we build with others. So we want to use an empathetic storytelling, what we, refer, what we refer to in the book as empathetic gateways. What that is, is I'm a qualitative and quantitative researcher, but we leaned really on qualitative research, rich descriptions, thick details, because it's in the richness and the universal aspect of your story where we have surpassed the, the windows and the mirrors and the doorways and somehow merged the story of the storyteller with the experiences of the listeners with a beautifully complex overlap of our existence in a moment where we vulnerably understand each other's journey. Do you want to chime in on the gateways at all, Jackie? One quote that I thought kind of pulled what empathetic gateways was, was the following. Empathetic gateways serve as opportunities for the listener to walk through our story and feel in some way that they are a part of our story. So that the listener can say, hey, I've experienced something like this when. And in that way, the reason for storytelling is not for the storyteller. The reason for storyteller is so that the listener can truly empathize with what we were feeling or the storyteller was feeling so they can reflect and then make change. Right. And Ooh. as you say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind of like, so as you say that, I think about the third part. So like our, our theoretical framework is taking the critical storytelling, integrating empathetic storytelling, but doing so in a way that it's autobiographical. 
So if you overlay autobi autobiographies, and we have a trifecta of influences in this book pointing to what this book is really about. So if you have autobiographies, they're primary sources of data. You're not story stealing. So there's a uniqueness when a person is both the subject and the object of investigation mm. and the story. So it allows you to see the like the fluidity of, I, I'm going to out myself right now and say that if I tell a story over the years, that story changes. And that's not a bad thing. Stories change over the years because we change over the years. So the meaning we make of our stories evolve over the years. So it's that aspect also of the personal connection to the stories. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking of, in a sense, it's like the first line of the book. Sorry, I spent like thousands of hours on this book, so I have it <laughs> mostly memorized. But <laughs> I think we begin the book by saying something like stories provide an avenue to make sense of our world. Share what we value with others. Create scripts for people to know each other better and invite people into places and times that exists somewhere between a fleeting moment that causes us to tell the story only once and those stories that seem to resonate with the power and worthiness to be retold time and again. And both those stories that you only have to say once and get out of your system and the one that follows you for the rest of your life are equally meaningful. And to Katie's original question in part was, how does this help to elevate voices build awareness and create change. What I would say to that is that these stories, all true, are raw and they're honest and they're often heartbreaking. There are a lot of tears in working with these authors. They're thought provoking. And most importantly, they represent voices, some of whom before this book never had a platform, which is really important. In our intro, mm. we we frame the purpose of the book in terms of four things, in fact. Number one, elevate voices. Number two, promote awareness. Number three, provide space and protocols for discussion. And number four, to be moved to action. Great. Wow. Yeah, listen, I, I don't know about Katie, but like I'm just sitting here taking all this in, right? <laughs> Uh, just this idea of not just hearing a story to hear it, but to empathize with what the storyteller is saying and, and sharing, rather, uh, knowing that this is a part of someone's journey and being able to connect with it. I, it just, it's mind-blowing. Uh, and now hearing you say that, it makes so much sense that why, as I was reading through some of the stories, I promise I could find myself either in situations just like the storyteller or something very similar. And, you know, going back to that moment in time and really feeling as though, you know, I was a part of that story. Yeah. yeah. It's nice that you have that experience. And I would, you're making me think of the fact that empathetic storytelling. So there's this duality. You're either going to connect or you're not. If you're connecting, then really dive into the reasons why you're connecting. And if you're not, ask yourself why you're not able to empathize with this person's story. Because that might be an implicit bias in and of itself that you can uncover. Mm. So, Ooh, you can't say amen, say ouch. Gosh, Sean. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Listen. Um, Sean, you mentioned this earlier. 
Um, but my favorite podcast co-host, our NCSN president, Patty Harrington, uh, has a chapter featured in this book. And so yeah. I'm going to pose this question to all three of you all, right? Um, and hearing you describe some of the stories uh, that are told in the book, I know that this wasn't easy work. And Sean, you alluded to putting in, you know, years of work with this and that some or maybe even all of the stories really hit home for you as they may hit home for some of the readers, right? What is your advice to those approaching these stories or even their own storytelling? Well, I, if you guys don't mind, I'll jump in first. I okay. I just so appreciated um, Jackie and Sean reaching out and asking if I wanted to participate in this process. It's something I'd never done before and I've I've learned so much from them and with them and from uh, some of the other authors. But I'll go back to um, something that Sean mentioned earlier about really making a story kind of autobiographical, um, but then thinking about it in a way that what does it tell us? Um, what does it what does it show? What does it reveal in the story after processing it and maybe processing it for a long time? <laughs> so. Um, I remember Sean saying, um, you know, some of our best advice is to really dig into how you were feeling and what you were thinking about and, you know, what your experience was during and, and after, right? Like, what were the things that were happening in your head? And it really helps you to process what you heard, how you reacted, how might you do it differently next time? Um, you know, what were the good and bad things that came out of that particular experience and how might you handle it um, next time? And I think that that deep process of self-investigation, <laughs> um, being able to put that out for other people to hear and to see is really a helpful thing um, because it really does let them get into your shoes, right? To get into your um, your thoughts, during an experience and really walk away with a better understanding of both the person and um, a real life experience. So thank you, Sean and Jackie. I, I can't tell you how much I've appreciated this whole experience. Well, Sean and, uh, Sean and Jackie, what would you guys say uh, to those who will be interacting with these stories or even engaging in some of their own storytelling one day? Well, it's uh, piggybacking off what Katie was saying. It's it, the people, the conversations, uh, spending countless of hours pouring over every word of every story gone untold that are just dying to be out there. Um, I can't even begin to tell you how honored I am that these authors opened up in such an amazing way with vulnerability. I mean, I remember exactly where I was, Katie, when I got on the phone with you to talk with you about your story. I remember like the temperature, the the way I felt, where I was sitting, everything else. So it's like your richness of your story created a story for me in that moment because you were vulnerable. And a lot of people have the process of, I don't have a story. Then my story isn't important. Then, well, I've never said this out loud. And then, it, it, I mean, now to this day, I just had a conversation a few days ago with one of our authors where they're saying things that they never thought they would voice in their entire life. It's it's kind of like first they think it, then they whisper it, then they speak it. And we're really hoping that this 
book helps it become like a, a roar for them. And one of the things in terms of like the, how the stories really hit home is we want to make sure that the reader has a process. So in the book, in the introduction, we give you four protocols. Protocol number one is how are you going to read these stories? Because I'm going to be honest with you. I started reading these stories as an editor and I had to take a hot minute more than once. It, it, like I thought I could read three stories today and I read one story and it emotionally impacted me in a way that I couldn't absorb another story for a couple of days. Um, so we're going to give you a protocol of how to read the stories. We're also going to share with you our journey of me and the other authors writing the story. So we're going to tell you how to write your own stories. The third protocol, because I do not want to be like one of those person who's people who's like, hey, here's a great idea. How do you do it in the classroom? I don't know. Go figure it out yourself. <laughs> so we give you a protocol to use empathetic storytelling in the classroom and also how to use empathetic storytelling outside of the classroom, like in leadership positions and whatnot. Um, so we go into that concrete advice. But uh, if, can I be honest and raw and real in terms of the the ways that this hit home for me, I was reading a couple of these stories um, and two words came to mind. And I know I said this to different authors as I heard their stories. And those two words are forgive yourself. So there's a movie. I'm going to I'm going to date myself. It's an old movie. It's from it's Goodwill Hunting, Robin Williams and Matt Damon. You know, Robin Williams looks at Matt Damon in this movie. And Matt Damon had a father who was extremely abusive in this movie. And he starts repeating over and over again to Matt Damon in the room, just the two of them. He starts saying, it's not your fault. And Matt Damon's mm. like, I, and then he's like, no, it's not your fault. And he says it again and again and again. And then Matt Damon, he, his character reacts a little violently and then finally, they're holding each other, breaking down because he finally realizes that it's not their fault. It's not his fault that he went through the abuse, the abuse that he went through. So if I'm being open and raw and honest, I remember watching that movie for the first time back when we had to rent VHS cassettes and rewind them when we brought them back. Um, I remember sitting in my room alone, crying, replaying that scene, listening to those words for me. It's not your fault knowing that I heard those words in that moment, but every time I heard it, uh, I felt, how can I say this best? It's like I felt the abusive hand of, of my father on my neck, taking my breath away so that the shortness of my breath was blocking me from believing those words because his words were and are so much more powerful than the four words, it's not your fault. So, yeah, it's, that's why I centered on and I told people to forgive yourselves, because with some things I know that I'll never think it's not my fault. I'll always think it's my fault, but I can forgive myself. So when you're when you're going through the process of of reliving your stories, especially the ones that are most painful to you, you got to keep telling yourself to forgive yourself. Give some grace. Allow mm -hmm. yourself to have some takeaways without it sitting right on your heart and being able to move forward. You said that earlier, really thinking about moving forward. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. On, on that note, what Sean's describing, we heard from many, many authors, how when you write 
these stories, even if these events had happened decades ago, right? Like Sean said, you relive those same emotions. So the writing was very difficult. And I think what kept people going is the question of how is this story going to challenge others to do something differently, to make education a better place? So that was, I think, the hope that got a lot of people through that said, well, my story is not that important. It just happened to me. Yes, it is important. You are not the only one. Mm -hmm. Let's tell this. Let's get it out in the world so that we can do something about it. So, oh, that's good. So, so thankful for all these authors who so bravely told their stories. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the things that Jackie and I talked about a lot was there's an extreme amount of trust. So if, if you're listening to this podcast, find find your person that you can trust the most. Because I, I keep thinking about the process of wanting to be a good steward of everybody's story in this book. Because they trusted us and in Brill and in the other chapter authors to be associated with everybody in this book. So like when we help people with their stories, it's like I didn't want a heavy hand as the editor. I wanted it, the lightest touch possible with the heaviest of words so that they felt safe enough to truly say the words that only they could say. And I'm glad you bring up the authors because their courage, their fortitude to let go of secrets they've kept for decades. That that takes, I mean, I, I can't think of the words to describe the honor that we feel as editors that they trusted us to do something like that. Wow. I, you know, just hearing you talk about uh, the healing that can come from interacting with these stories, I think this work is so timely. Uh, we've never needed a vehicle to help us forgive ourselves, uh, to be able to continue the walk of whatever journey you're on, uh, to be, you know, a blessing, for lack of better words, to somebody else's life. Uh, I think now is so appropriate more than ever. And I'm it, it, not to out anybody. They can out themselves if they want to. But I'm going to tell you a couple days ago, I was at a, a, a solution tree event and I heard a lot of stories there, a lot of really rich stories. Um, and there was one story that I heard there. Um, it was uh, about a person telling a story about a student named Moses yeah. <laughs> that story just moved me. I mean, there he was. I mean, you can name yourself if you want. But there he was on the stage, a grown man brought to tears on the stage telling a beautiful story about his relationship with a student. And there I was, a grown man in the audience, bawling my eyes out because I felt <laughs> the emotions. I mean, that is empathetic storytelling right there. When you're mm -hmm. real, when you're raw, when you share who you truly are with your students... And like to other people and with your students as well, it's just I had an experience a couple of days ago to, to to just be engulfed in this lovely story with this lovely human being. And I felt like I was there with them. And that's the essence of storytelling, just creating a bond that that you couldn't have without that story. Oh, well, 
I may know the person you're talking about, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, as you referenced that moment, I didn't even think of it as such. And in getting to share the story of Moses, um, it's such a nice relief, you know, to share this this wonderful moment that came out of, you know, a bunch of question marks for me. Um, but as you said, to have people, you know, be able to relate to it and to be able to reflect and say, you know, I've got a Moses or two. Uh, in my life, um, I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. So, you know, I don't, I don't go ahead, Jack. I was gonna say, you bring up a, an important point with a story from a professional development event because I think we sometimes forget that what we remember from professional development events are the stories that people tell. It mm. makes that mm. of that new learning come to life if it's serious, if it's funny or what have you. Yeah. And in this age of a lot of PD revolving around implicit bias, equity, things that we should be doing in our classrooms, oftentimes we lack the personal narrative. So you can't relate as well. So yeah. bringing the stories to give examples of what this looks like and what this feels like, we hope will be different from other things out there which speaks to inequities, barriers, and implicit bias. But with that autobiographical piece, you really get to feel it. Nice, nice. You're so right, bringing in that personal connection. Learning is such a human endeavor, right? It, it just happens better when we're connecting with each other. And I think these empathetic stories really help to do that by really digging into someone's experiences and how they reacted and what they've learned from that. Yeah, absolutely. Powerful. So Speaking of which, I, I've got to put this little plug out here. So I was reading Katie's chapter, and as I was reading it, I could find like four or five instances where I was like, oh yeah, I, I've had moments like that. So let me just say, if you're listening to this podcast and you are a teacher leader um, and you are tasked with supporting teacher learning, I guarantee you read Katie's chapter. You're going to read it and you're going to reflect on it. And you're, you're, you're going to say, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I've had that person before. I know that person. Um, <laughs> but, I did. <laughs> uh, I promise you'll be able to connect with it. Uh, and honestly, I was reading through it like sitting at the edge of my bed, like waiting to see, okay, well, what did she do? How did she handle this? She said she'd come back to it. We put it on the back burner. The whole room was silent, waiting to see what would happen. So, I mean, I, I loved it. Uh, like like Jackie was saying, it's so easy to connect to. Um, you know, I, I was understanding. I was there with you every moment. So, um, speaking of connecting, as we get ready to wrap up, uh, I have to ask you guys this question, right? Since... Our podcast theme for this series is we're all math people and thinking about this empathetic storytelling project. What would you offer? What would you say to the person who might say, well, you know, math really isn't my thing. I'm just not a math person. Sure. I have two thoughts. Number one, if someone does not like math, I am certain it's because they are a product of their past negative experiences in math classrooms experience in which mathematics was not sense-making. So a favorite quote from my friend and colleague, Samantha Pirelli is the following. Kids don't hate math. 
they hate the way math makes them feel. So secondly, everyone, in my opinion, is a math person. And with a few more positive math experiences, I've seen how we can shift mindsets and bring joy to anyone who doesn't identify as a math person yet. Mm, come on, yeah. Wait, can I just give you some Maracas in there, uh, Jack? The Maracas <laughs> are still here for the new year. <laughs> I was writing, as you were saying that, quote, uh, kids don't hate math, they hate the way math makes them feel. So, I mean, uh, that's powerful. Mic yep. drop. Sean, go ahead. Sean's got some thoughts, too. Well, there's two things. First of all, if you're going to mention Sam, then I'm going to say I love you Monday in case she hears this and she'll know what I mean. <laughs> um, uh, this is where I realize that people shouldn't ask me questions that they don't want my honest answer to, but I'm going to give it anyway. Well, yeah, give it to us. <laughs> okay. It's, it's easy to, to say statements like I'm not a math person. It's also easy to say statements like everyone's a math person and like all by binary dichotomies in this world, the truth lies somewhere in a spectrum that's uniquely different for every single person. Um, I'm going to explain it. So, and I was told by a, a colleague not to share my real answer whenever anybody says um, <laughs> we're all math people, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to let that go because I'm going to embrace the bravery of all the authors that they showed and how they can be true to themselves because they were so, with me just just bear with me for a moment so yeah, well and this is also because i'm thinking of another story with my daughter's pre-calc teacher in high school where she told them and told us as parents at back to school night that her job as a teacher is to make sure that two-thirds of earth students fail because they are not math people and they should not go on in math so i'm going to frame this personably and say, I'm going to lean back to the book, to our theoretical framework, and framework, and I'm going to say it with three answers. So the first, the first theoretical framework is a critical lens. So let's be critical. No, we're not all math people, and thank goodness for that. Bear with me here. I know I just offended a bunch of people, but you'll understand in a second. Um, we are all math people in the truest sense of the word of mathematics because we literally live and breathe mathematics. But thank goodness we're not all math people because we're currently <laughs> in a defined mathematics position because to be a math person endorses and adheres to all the centuries of oppression, isolation, inequities, violence, abuse, and giving up our selves in order to be math people in K through 12 education. It means giving up who we are so that we can be a part of the system that doesn't want you unless you look and act like, well, you know, somebody who looks and acts like me. So thank goodness we're not all math people, because if we were, then there would no longer be any hope to change the system. Like we'll never all be math people until we redefine what school math is and what it means to be a math person. So yeah, we're, we are all math people, but we need to code switch to adhere to the mathematics that's present in schools in order to be a math person in schools. And you can take the second theoretical framework, which is empathetic. So you could take that question and you could say, this is what I think, and this is what I think people mean when they say we're all math people. What does it mean to say I'm not a math person? I want to understand why you feel this way. I want to help you realize you don't need to become a math person because you're already a math person. That's the empathetic answer to that. I, I think the answer lies more with the autobiographical. So when people ask that question and people give that answer, 
I'm going to dive into the richness of the statement and say, how about this? Make that statement into the title of your story and then tell me your story. I'm not a math person. Go. Give me the details of the story. Tell me what you did when you had to choose whether or not you were a math person. Reflect on the biases in that story, yours and others. I mean, when you when you do, you uncover questions in this statement, like who's saying this? Whose voice is this? Is it yours, parents, siblings, peers, teachers? When did you first think you weren't a math person? Because there's some math trauma going on here. And what would happen if you let go of the statement? Like let that statement be in the past. By the way, it's okay if you think you're not a math person. This goes back to what I said before. Just forgive yourself because it'll also let you forgive others and let it go so you can be that math person. Um, so I, I don't think the answer to I'm not a math person lies in the critical or the empathetic or the autobiographical entirely, but like all complexly beautiful revolutionary answers, I think it lies somewhere in the spectrum of a blend between the three. My gut says lean to more towards autobiographical. Tell me your story. Because when you think you're a math, whether you think you're a math person or not, I'm kind of reminded of the the last bit of the book that says something about um, the key to working together lies in listening to, learning from, and, and finding the value in everyone's story. Because maybe then we'll realize that we're all connected through one shared story, intricately wrote, woven together, and a diverse tapestry with a delicate thread of our humanity. So math person, not a math person. I care less about that and I care more about what your story is behind that. Because, I mean, look at this podcast. I'm a math person, Brian is, Katie is, Jackie is. And if we're all connected, then you are too. So. I loved Sean, the the thinking about math people, maybe people don't think of themselves as math people because they don't fit a mold that we have created. That doesn't necessarily mean they can't do math, doesn't necessarily mean they are not welcome to do math, but they don't see themselves in that mold. That's really, an, uh, I think, an important um, a, a way for us to think about that in, in a very different way than maybe some of our other guests have brought up. So I appreciate I appreciate that. I appreciate you guys both. Um, I said thank you earlier, but I'll, I'll repeat it again from me, but also from uh, NCSM and from uh, all the people who are going to hear this. Thank you for being here, for being open, for sharing some of your stories um, and encouraging others to lift their voices too. Um, I, I'm very... I don't even know what the word is, <laughs> proud or um, thankful to have been on a journey learning with you guys and with the other folks. And we just, Brian and I appreciate you being here to talk with us about it and to share it with our, our listeners. Um, so uh, before we leave, tell us just a little bit more about how we can find out about the book, when it's gonna be out and um, other places where people can connect with you too. I'll answer the first part. Uh, we hope the book will be out in February. Cross your fingers. Um, at that time, you can order it on brill.com. Before it comes out officially, we should be able to pre-order it at brill.com. And we'll put that link in the in the notes for the podcast as well. And how about getting in touch with you guys? Are you on social media? Do you have websites? 
Yeah, I mean, you could, well, actually, I'm going to Google myself first first before I say, you can Google us because I want to <laughs> see what pops up. But yeah, we're both on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, you can email us too. Uh, my email is mathcoachnank at gmail.com. And Jackie's is? Maraska J at skokie69.net. We'll put those... So you can get all the right spellings and everything in the, in the <laughs> thank you. Um, you guys, I can't tell you, uh, thank you enough. Really appreciate your time. And we'll, we'll get all this information out so that people can um, search it up as my niece would say, <laughs> and um, find out all the information. If you need anything else, please don't hesitate to reach out to Sean or Jackie, or of course, Brian and I. Thanks you guys so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. We hope that you have been inspired by this bold mathematics leadership conversation and will tune into our podcast series each month. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. You can learn more about NCSM, leadership and mathematics education, and our upcoming professional learning events on the NCSM website, mathedleadership.org. You can also follow NCSM on Twitter at mathedleaders and using the hashtag NCSMBold. Until next time.